I pray your heart resonates with that sentiment. Glory to the name of Jesus. You've got your Bible with me. Turn to Matthew chapter 21. We're going to pray one more time in just a moment, but um, we have been in a series in First and Second Kings, and for this week and next week, we're not going to be in First and Second Kings, but we are still going to continue to reflect on the kingship of Jesus, and in particular with Palm Sunday. This is Palm Sunday on the church calendar globally, so we join with other believers around the world in reflecting on the entry of Jesus into Jerusalem on his way to the cross at Passover, uh, and then next Sunday, we will join with the church globally in celebrating the resurrection of Jesus. So, but our job today is a heavy one, uh, and it's because we don't, I don't get to be with you all week long, uh, day by day. And so what I wanna do with us today, and then we're gonna do it again on Friday, on Good Friday, is I want to begin to set our attention on the cross of Jesus and on his sufferings. Uh, it's been said somewhere by somebody <laughs> more profound than I am that to go from the high of Palm Sunday to the high of Easter Sunday is to cheat and be cheated. And every good pastor knows that part of helping you embrace and walk in the purposes of God for you and an understanding of who God is and what he's done is to turn your attention towards the cross of Jesus and to try and hold your attention there. And so that's what we need to begin to do today. And it's what we need to do throughout the week. It's what we need to come together on Friday to do so that we will come together on Sunday then, not rushing to the resurrection, but coming then to a resurrection, having fully weighed the cost of death that came before that resurrection. So that's our work together today. To set our attention on the cross of Jesus and what um, George read in Isaiah 53, and I'm gonna read to you again, actually, we didn't talk about that, but he read it and I plan to read it is that the sufferings of Jesus make us want to turn our faces away. I don't know if you caught that in Isaiah's description of Jesus. As one from whom men turn their faces, it's hard to keep our attention on suffering that great. It's hard to put our eyes on it and not want to flinch and not want to turn away because they're grave. And I don't need to dramatize them in any way. I don't need to, to stir up some imagination of what the sufferings were like so that you would somehow feel them more deeply. I just need to get your eyes on them and hold them there. That's our work today. It's heavy work, it's hard work, but without it, we're not prepared for the work that God wants to do in us and through us. And so Holy Week, I don't know if you feel this way. I feel, that I feel a heaviness in this week every year that from this day, Palm Sunday, until next Sunday, there's just a weight that feels like it rests on me. It feels heavy um, because it feels like everywhere I turn, I need to be reminded of the sufferings of Jesus. And I need to not take my eyes off of him. And if you're like me, I want to flinch. I want to look elsewhere. I want to be distracted from them. I don't want to sit with them. So the question I want to ask you today, and then I want, to just, I want us to just for a moment try and wrap our minds around the sufferings of Jesus. But the question for us today is, do we have room in our heart for a suffering king? And I want to help you see a contrast between two groups of people, actually one woman and then a group of people, where one has room in their heart for a suffering king and one does not. And the 
that's the question. The statement is this, is do we have eyes to see that the sufferings of Jesus weren't proof that he wasn't king, they were evidence that he was. And for one group of people, the crowd in Matthew chapter 21, the sufferings of Jesus, unexpected, are evidence that he's not who he said he was, that he's not king at all, because how could a king suffer this way? But for Mary, in Matthew 26, the sufferings of Jesus are not just evidence that he's not king, they point to the fact that he is, because they usher in his kingdom. The sufferings of Jesus usher in his kingdom. Now, when I, when I talk about a need to turn our attention on a suffering king, I wanna make sure you don't hear me say that he is not presently reigning gloriously at the right hand of the Father. I don't deny that in any way, but what I do know is that between now and his return, we will always need to set our eyes on his sufferings in order to understand the weight of our sin and the glory of what he's accomplished. And I want you to see too that we won't stop worshiping Jesus for his sufferings when he comes back. In Revelation chapter five, after the resurrection and after the ascension, it's the saints around the throne, uh, it's the 24 elders, it's the four living creatures, and what do they declare to Jesus? Worthy is the lamb who was slain from the foundations of the earth. In other words, his sufferings will always be cause for glory for him. They will always be something we reflect on. It won't be that he returns and we live forever in eternal peace and in righteousness and with no sin and a kingdom that has no end. And we never again reflect upon the sufferings because those are in the past. And now we are in the present of the glorious reign of Jesus where he is the light and there's no uh, threat to his authority. There never is a threat to his authority, but there's no one who even questions it and every knee has bowed and every tongue confessed that he is Lord. It's not as if in that moment we will cease to reflect upon the sufferings of Jesus. We will for eternity praise him for being the lamb who was slain. The sufferings of Christ will always be a source of deep worship for his people and they will always be cause for his glory. Amen. Let me read to you Isaiah 53 and just do this for me. Just close your eyes, if you would. I want you to see the crown of thorns. I want you to see the spear pierced into his side. See his back, muscle torn from bone. See his pierced wrists, his pierced feet. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and as one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. He was oppressed and he was afflicted. He opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. 
in verse 10, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. So Lord Jesus, help us today in the power of the Spirit to put our eyes on your cross and not to move them. We need to see the weight of our sin, the cost of it, your glorious endurance and strength and wisdom and power, your humility, your perfect righteousness, the injustice of the cross. Would you give us eyes to see that today? In Jesus' name, amen. So as I said, what I wanna do is just something really simple. I wanna take, I wanna read to you two stories and in each one, I wanna make one point. So I wanna read to you Matthew 21, one to 11, which is the triumphal entry is what we always call it as Jesus coming into Jerusalem. And I wanna show you a few things about the history of that and help you see how this group of people do not see the sufferings of Jesus as evidence of his kingship or as pointing towards it, but as evidence that he is in fact not king and then what they do with that. And then I wanna show you Mary. So let's turn together, Matthew chapter 21. Let's read verses one through 11 and reflect on it together. Here's what it says. It says, now when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethpage, to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples saying to them, go into the village in front of you and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say the Lord needs them and he will send them at once. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet saying, say to the daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. The disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put, them, put on them their cloaks and he sat on them. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up saying, who is this? And the crowds said, this is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. So let me point out a couple of things to you that aren't necessarily readily obvious as you just read this story. Uh, the first is somewhat obvious is that Jesus is entering into Jerusalem before Passover, leading up to sharing the Passover feast with his disciples. And so this begins what we put on the church calendar as Holy Week, where we begin to reflect upon the last, the last week of the life of Jesus. Now, John, when he tells this narrative, this story is in um, each of the gospels. And in John's retelling of the story, we read Matthew's, John places this activity, this triumphal entry in John chapter 12, right after Jesus raising Lazarus in John chapter 11. And what John is implying by that and what is true is that all this sort of messianic fervor, this sense of uh, coming to spread palm branches and put their cloaks on the ground and like welcome Jesus into the city is most likely related to the fact that he's just raised Lazarus from the dead and word has gotten around. As you can imagine, uh, Bethany and Bethpage are basically suburbs of Jerusalem. You can think of them that way. Towns that are a little bit smaller, but not far, kind of in the region of Jerusalem. And so when he raised Lazarus, 
that word would have spread into Jerusalem. And so now as he comes in to Jerusalem, there's this sense of expectation around him as the Messiah. He's come to deliver us from Roman rule and from Roman oppression. Here comes deliverance. And so we see that played out in a couple ways. But there's one other thing that John helps us with that is a little different in the way he orders his telling of the story. And it's really helpful when you think about this. You might ask, well, why all of a sudden? So Jesus sends away in fulfillment of two Old Testament prophecies, Isaiah 62 and Zechariah 9.9. That's why he sends his disciples to get the donkey. Uh, and so when they bring it back, he's gonna enter into the city. Now, when Zechariah prophesies about this, he makes a point to say the reason the Messiah will come on a donkey, on the foal of a beast of burden is because he's humble and lowly. That's the point that Zechariah wants to make. It's a point the crowd misses here. But John does an even better job of helping us see this because when John tells the story, he makes the point that people have already begun to gather around Jesus outside of the city and to sort of whip up into a frenzy of praise. And because they're doing that or as they're doing it, not Jesus has sent for the donkey in advance of that. They're doing it. And Jesus goes, let me correct this and send for the donkey now. So he sends for the donkey almost as a way of the way John paints it as correcting the crowd's expectations, as trying to help them see something different than what they currently see. In other words, I'm not coming into Jerusalem on a war horse. I'm coming in on a donkey. Now I want you to imagine, just imagine with me for a moment, Kings ride into battle on horses because they are majestic and powerful beasts, yes? Have you seen a horse run? I mean, someone seated on a horse just looks kingly. They just look like a person in authority, right? They're these gorgeous, beautiful, and the way they move is so fluid and wonderful and beautiful. Now, uh, take for a moment and reverse that. How does someone seated on a donkey look? It's not a great look. You do not ride into war. Kings don't ride into war on donkeys because donkeys aren't intimidating and you just look kind of dumb on a donkey that trots itself and shakes you as you go. And the point of the prophecy is exactly that. Jesus has not come to make war. He's a king, not of war, but of peace. Now, let me remind you that when Jesus comes again, will he come on a donkey? No, he will come on a horse of war to wage war on all evil and wickedness and unrighteousness and to undo it forever. But in this first coming, he rides in on a donkey and the people miss what that's all about. They don't have eyes to see it. They simply want a king in their own expectation. They want a king who will meet all their hopes about overthrowing the tyrants around them. Now, Jesus' ministry is typically directed in three ways. It, it moves out in three ways in the gospel of Matthew in particular, but really in all the gospels. Matthew's the most clear about it, is that he will identify when Jesus is either speaking to the religious leaders who are his opponents, to the crowds, or to his disciples. And what he says in each of those three directions is different based upon who he's talking to. And the general idea is that the opponents usually get the harshest words from Jesus. The crowds get challenging words from Jesus and they are there as long as what they're hearing is something they like. And the moment they hear something they don't like, they are gone. And the disciples are those that at least until the very end, stay with Jesus. 
When he says something hard, they say something like, where else can we go? You have the words of eternal life. And if you noted in Matthew 21, he paints this group of people as which of those three groups? The crowds. That, that term is repeated, the crowds. The crowds did this. The crowds did that. Because what Matthew's telling to you and to I as we read this story is that this is not a committed group of followers. This is a group of people who have certain expectations. And if Jesus meets them, they will follow him. And if he doesn't meet them, they will not. So as he comes in then, they miss the significance of everything that he's trying to show them. In fact, when Luke and John tell this story and they, the people declare, Hosanna, Hosanna literally means in the Psalms, save us. It's a request. In fact, in the Psalms, it's always a request. Here, it's used as a cry of praise. So we understand it as being this general idea of saying, you can save us. You are the one with the authority to save us. And they say, blessed is the... Blessed is the son of David. So here in Matthew, they're saying, you are the king in the line of David. If you've been with us in the first and second Kings series, do you remember that we talked about how in second Samuel chapter seven, God had made a promise, a covenant with David. And he said, I will send you a king in your line from your lineage that will sit on the throne forever. And the people understood that that was the fulfillment of that was going to be the Messiah. So when they say to Jesus, you are the son of David, they're saying, you're a king in the line of David. And the other gospel writers, when they share this story, Luke and John in particular, they actually record the crowd saying, blessed is not the one who comes in the name of the Lord, but blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. So they're all about calling Jesus king. Now there's another place that we're going to find the crowds. I'm not gonna read it to you. But not to say that it's the exact same group of people, but here they are the crowd, the nameless, faceless crowd who's with him as long as he meets their expectations. And then a few chapters later, it will be a crowd who is so easily convinced by the religious leaders, the opponents of Jesus, to when he's on trial with, before Pilate, and Pilate asks, who do you want me to release to you? And it says the religious leaders convinced the crowds to cry out for Barabbas. And when Pilate said, what would you have me do with Jesus? The crowds said what? crucify him, the crowds. See, the second, it's evident that Jesus cannot deliver them from Rome when he's been beaten bloody and placed on trial. And there seems no hope that he could actually give the deliverance that they want. They abandon him. They reject him. There is no room in their heart for a suffering king. They have no eyes to see. To the crowd, here's the summary. To the crowd, the sufferings of Jesus are evidence that he is not king. Once he doesn't meet their expectations, when it doesn't involve immediate deliverance, when it doesn't involve deliverance from earthly enemies, when it doesn't mean an easier, more comfortable life. And so friends, the question I have before we turn to Mary is just, is that like us? When we reflect upon the sufferings of Jesus, are they cause for us to see that he is in fact king? Do we see those sufferings, not just as evidence that he's king, but do we then also see that where we face trials? When, let me phrase it this way. Has there been an expectation that you've had in your life that has gone unmet? Something you'd hoped for? Do you still trust him? And will you still follow him? That's what it means to have room in your heart for a suffering king. It means I trust him and I follow him as my king 
even when he doesn't meet my expectations. To be the crowd is to say, I will stop following and I will stop trusting because my expectations and my hopes have gone unmet. That's the lesson we learned from the crowd. Now let's turn to a more hopeful story, shall we? Matthew chapter 26. So just go a few chapters over. Now, Matthew is only going to call this, he's not, he's not gonna call this woman by name. We're gonna look at verses six through verse 13. But the gospel of John, again, helpful here, tells us that this is Mary, the sister of Lazarus, the sister of Martha. So if you've read through the gospels before, those are some characters that come up uh, numerous times as friends of Jesus. And so listen to what Mary does. So now when Jesus was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, a woman came up to him with an alabaster flask of very expensive ointment, and she poured it on his head as he reclined at table. And when the disciples saw it, they were indignant, saying, why this waste? For this could have been sold for a large sum and given to the poor. But Jesus, aware of this, said to them, why do you trouble the woman? For she has done a beautiful thing to me. For you always have the poor with you, but you will not always have me. In pouring this ointment on my body, she has done it to prepare me for burial. Truly, I say to you, wherever this gospel is proclaimed in the whole world. Now pay attention because when Jesus says truly, always remember that he's getting our attention. He's saying, really listen to what I'm about to say. Truly, I say to you, wherever this gospel is proclaimed in the world, in the whole world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. Just think about that for a moment. What he's saying is what will go hand in hand with the proclamation of my death and then ultimately my resurrection and the forgiveness of sins will go a memory of what she has done here. Why? What is so weighty about this? Well, let's, let's unpack the story a little bit to understand how Mary has room in her heart for a suffering king how Mary has room in her heart for a suffering king. So I already told you that John tells us that this is Mary, even though she's not identified here. Now understand that when a guest came over in the ancient Near East for, for dinner, it would have been expected that there would have been uh, oil or something fragrant given to the person. You can imagine it's not a society where baths are readily available all the time. So it was considered just being a good host or a good hostess to provide some anointing oil of some kind, something fragrant to place upon the hands, the shoulders, the neck, the head, to refresh yourself. But what becomes very evident here is that Mary has saved this flask of alabaster ointment for a very special occasion. It's expensive. We're told the disciples' reaction is, whoa, that's a lot, right? So it's this expensive thing. Once she breaks it, she cannot save any of it. It all will be poured out at this moment. So just think to yourself, like if you've ever saved something, a, you know, um, a gift card for a, a favorite restaurant, and you were gonna save this for like a special occasion. We're, we're not just gonna use it any old day of the week. We're gonna make sure that we put this aside. And when the special day comes, then we're gonna, we're gonna put it to use. That's exactly what Mary's done. She has saved this and she recognizes the moment. She sees something in this moment that she says, now is the time to lavish upon Jesus the greatest thing I have in all my possession. And she does. Now, it would seem that when she, it's particularly fragrant, it's this very rich ointment, it would have cost some, tell us, uh, 
you know, maybe a year's worth of salary, perhaps. So it's a very big gift. And when she pours it out upon Jesus, we can probably understand that just historically, we don't know if Mary understands the full weight of what she's doing, but the beauty is that Jesus is going to declare the meaning of what she does. But probably in this moment, she understands herself to be anointing Jesus as a king is anointed. If you read through the Old Testament, did you notice that kings get anointed? David gets anointed, Saul gets anointed. It's a way of declaring that they are king or they are going to be king. And so most likely Mary is in this action in her mind saying, I anoint you king. Something is coming, something about this moment compels me that I want to give you the most valuable thing that I have and to declare to you that you are king. And Jesus is gonna bring that act together with one other thing, which we'll talk about in just one moment. But let's say this first, the disciples fail to see the importance of this moment and they fail to recognize something because their statement is really telling they fail to recognize that there's no such thing as a gift that is too great to lavish on Jesus. Now, they make a show of saying this could have been given to the poor and Jesus is not denying that we should care for the poor. In fact, he commands us to in other places. Care for the poor is absolutely something he calls his people to. But he's saying in this moment, there's something more important than that. And so while the disciples are thinking, well, you could have done this or you could have done that, he says, no, this is the exact right use of this. And what I want you to see, friends, is that Mary's heart is so adoring of Jesus. She treasures him so much that she does not imagine that there is anything that she possesses that is not worth pouring out to the last drop for him. That whatever her greatest gift is, it all should be spent on him. And there's a lesson to be learned there in terms of how do we become a people who have room in our heart for a suffering king? Can I ask you, do you believe that you have anything, time, talent, treasure, that is not worth, that Jesus is not worth pouring out those things to the last drop for? There is nothing that should be held in reserve. It's part of how we begin to to grow our affection for him. You don't wait until you feel affection for Jesus to pour yourself out to the last drop. You pour yourself out and give him everything you have and watch your affection grow. Watch your love for him abound. That's the first thing she sees and they miss. But I wanna point out one other thing as well. Far from being a waste, which is what the disciples say, Jesus, he doesn't call it a wise act. He doesn't call it a good act. He doesn't call it a righteous act. It is all those things. But what does he call it? He says, what she has done to me is beautiful. It's beautiful. Now, I love that because some of us, and I'm kind of prone to think this way, tend to think in terms of efficiency, expediency, and what gets the best result in a situation. Anybody else like that? Yeah, what's gonna accomplish, what's gonna be the most effective act to take in this moment? I'm not sure the pouring out of this ointment is the most effective act in this moment, but you know what it is? It's the most beautiful one. So all my artists out there, this is for you. Because what Jesus is saying is beauty is valuable. Beauty is valuable in my service. Make things beautiful for me. Pour out lavish gifts for me bring about beauty. He says, this is beautiful. I remember, I feel like I've learned this a lot in being married. I had a house before I got married to Amanda and it was a relatively Spartan existence. I think I had one thing on the walls and I thought I was doing pretty good. 
you know, had some taupe colored paint and some new floors and I thought I was doing awesome. And I remember I got married and very quickly, all of a sudden my house was filled with all these other decorations. And it dawned on me that I had really been living in an ugly house. It was not nice. People didn't come over and go, I feel so at home. The hospitality here. I mean, I was putting out, you know, meat and cheese on plates. Here you go. And then all of a sudden there were centerpieces on the table. There were serving dishes. There was thought given to how to host a person in our home. And all of a sudden God was saying, do you see the value in just beauty? I mean, sometimes I, to be honest, like, do we really need to buy that dish? We need to buy, is that really the most effective use? And you know what? Beauty is valuable. It's a lesson worth learning because it's part of learning how to value who Jesus is. It's pouring out beautiful things for him. Now, let's come to the crux of it. Jesus then, after all this, tells us what Mary has done and whether Mary understands it or not is not really the point because he gives the meaning. When Jesus says the meaning of something, that's the meaning of it. Can we all agree on that? So he gives the meaning of what she's done. He says, she has not only anointed me king, which is probably what's in her mind, she has anointed me for my burial, he says. So in this day and age, someone tried and then killed as a criminal would not receive the, the anointing or the ointments that would go on a person before they go in the grave. And so he knows that is coming for him. And because that's the case, he's saying what she's done now is pour out this anointing on me in advance. I won't receive it then. She's giving it to me now. She may think she's anointing me as king. She's anointing me for my burial. And what Jesus is doing when he's saying that is he's bringing those two things together. And he's saying, far from being evidence that I am not king, my sufferings and my death, which is soon to come, is actually evidence that I am king. An anointing as king and anointing for my burial go hand in hand. Does that make sense? That's what Jesus is declaring that this moment is actually about in ways the disciples themselves didn't have eyes to see. Now, the crowd, let's go back and compare the two or contrast the two. The crowd abandons Jesus when he doesn't meet their expectations. They see his sufferings as evidence that he is not who he claims to be, that he is in fact not king. But Mary sees the opposite. She sees the sufferings of Jesus as the evidence or at least is pointing to the fact that he is king. So that's the crowds and that's Mary. Now let's just talk about us for a moment. And I asked the question at the beginning of our time together, which was this, is do we have room in our heart for a suffering king? Do we have room in our heart for a suffering king? And the answer to that question, I think, is answered by whether or not we will trust him and follow him when he disappoints our expectations. You see, Mary is not thrown off by Jesus' suffering. He is her king and his kingdom is ushered in through suffering. But the crowd has no category for that. So let's make a few reflections then or a few observations that might help us in terms of growing our hearts for a suffering king. So the first thing we need to recognize is that we have to see his suffering as evidence that he is king. So let me give you one idea along those lines, right? We have to see that for Jesus, his suffering is how he is bringing in his kingdom. Now, he's king before he suffers, agreed? 
He's king because he's creator, because he's Lord. But his kingship is brought in through suffering. And so first I have to understand that in order to value suffering at all, in order to value trials and see what purpose they might have. I have to understand that his suffering is evidence that he's king. Here's one way that's the case. His suffering is evidence that he's king because it points to the fact that he had a purpose beyond this world. He had something to accomplish beyond this world. Do you remember John chapter 18, verse 36? He's on trial before Pilate. Pilate is asking him if he's king. And he says, if my kingdom was of this world, my servants would fight to basically prevent what's about to happen from happening. And the reverse of that is to say, they're not fighting because my purpose is beyond this world. I have something to accomplish richer and deeper and bigger and better than just getting a temporary kingdom or conquering you and toppling you, Pilate. There's something greater at stake and I, my eyes are set on it and I will not flinch or be moved from it. His suffering ushers in his kingdom, which is one of the ways that we know, one of the ways that we know that he had a purpose that was bigger than this. Now, let me just reflect for a moment on what does that mean for you and I in our trials? It means that the way we live in our trials has the opportunity to do the exact same thing that his did to point to the fact that we are living for something beyond this earth, living for something bigger and longer and more satisfying, more lasting. And the way we engage them, the way we understand them, the way we think about them, the way we seize them and use them for what they're intended has everything to say about what we believe about God's purposes in the world and my purpose underneath his kingship. Now, the second thing that we need to see to be able to have room in our heart for a suffering king is that my devotion and your devotion needs to be like Mary's. Our devotion needs to be like Mary's. And what I want you to notice there is simply this. Mary doesn't love Jesus because of what he will do for her. Mary loves Jesus for who he is. She's just enamored with Jesus. She doesn't hold anything back from him. She will pour out the last drop of devotion to him because he's him. It doesn't matter if he goes to the cross, she's devoted and she adores him. And here's the difference, friends. In our lives, if our devotion to Jesus is related to what he will do for us, whether he will heal us or not, whether he will give us that marriage partner or not, whether he will provide for us a certain financial well-being or not. If any of our devotion to Jesus is based upon what he will do for us, then we will be like the crowds. Our devotion must be born out of affection for him in his person. And that means learning to relate deeply to him day by day by day so that whatever he brings, whether it be trial or comfort, whether it be ease or suffering, we say, I am devoted to you because you're you. And there's no one like you. Where else could I go? You are unique. And my affection is not based, my affection for you is not based upon what you do or don't do for me. Now, that's not to say, friends, here's the trickiness of that, because let's not just be all sort of pie in the sky about that and make it sound like it's easy. Because it is right that when God gives us good gifts, we celebrate and thank him for that, right? It is right that our hearts rise with joy when we receive a gift from God. So how do we then prevent ourselves from just loving those things? We rightly celebrate that he's done them and given them to us, and it glorifies him that we say, 
thank you and, and feel joy over them. But how do we guard our heart against that becoming, well, I really am actually falling in love with just the things you do for me, not just, the, not just you. Well, friends, do you see that suffering and trials are the way? They are the way the kingship of Jesus is ushered into our heart so that we don't grab hold of the gifts and say, I love those rather than loving you. Those trials give us opportunity to say, oh, in this trial now, let me seize it so that I have an unadulterated love for you because in this trial now is the opportunity to test myself and to say, what do I love? Let me not let it slip past me. Let me not simply want it to be gone. Let me not miss the opportunity of it. Let me seize it so that my heart loves you only and most. That's hard to do. That is one of God's purposes in trials is that it just tears from us a love for him that would be born out of anything other than just that he is him and that we adore him, no matter what circumstance he brings into our life. So we have to see that our devotion needs to be like Mary's. And then finally, we have to see that he becomes, and this is related to what I was just saying, he becomes more fully my king. Now, I don't mean that he's not fully king. I mean to say more fully in a functional sense. Like I live underneath his being my king more and more and more. In other words, I follow better. I trust more. He becomes more fully my king through suffering. If I can see that. And there's a couple ways that happens. So I experience him as king by sharing in his sufferings. Because if it ushered in his authority, then it will also, it will also allow me to experience that authority when I walk in those trials. I come underneath his authority more fully when I walk through those trials. I display him as king in my life by sharing in those sufferings. In other words, not only do I have to seize on something so that I love him most, it testifies to the world around me that he is king. And then the last thing, is that, and this always astounds me, I can't wrap my head around it. And there is a mystery to this. What is this exactly going to be like? I don't know. But one of the things that our trials do is they prepare us to share, they prepare us to share his reign. So as I suffer, I am prepared to share his reign with him. And when I say, I don't know exactly what this will look like, Jesus has promised to all his followers that you will reign with me in authority. My natural gut reaction to that is to say, actually, no, Lord, may it never be because I, how could I ever share any authority with you? It all belongs to you. It's yours. I just wanna bow at your feet. That's what I wanna do. But he said, no, no, I'm gonna have you reign with me. And there's a mystery to what that will look like. But listen to what 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 12 says. It says, if we endure, meaning suffering, trial, difficulty, if we endure, what is the conditional promise? We will also reign with him. 2 Timothy 2.12. 2 Corinthians 4.17 talks about the same idea when it says this, for this light momentary affliction is preparing for us. Wait, let me pause there. When Paul writes this light momentary affliction, I need you to understand 
that he has given us a litany of all his sufferings, ailments, being stoned, being at the point of almost death, multiple you know, beatings with lashes and whips. So please don't hear light momentary affliction like he stepped on a pebble and he's saying, well, this, yeah, that's that, I, I can get past that light momentary affliction. I need you to hear that, okay? Because otherwise you hear that and go, well, he doesn't know what I've been through. And friends, I want you to know the one writing that is saying something very weighty when he calls sufferings light and momentary. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. In other words, what he's saying is, you are prepared in the depth of your character, in the depth of your being. These trials, these afflictions, they shape you in a way nothing else can to, so that you are ready to share the reign of Christ with Christ. Do you see how valuable his, his to make room in our heart for a suffering king, we have to understand how deeply valuable they are. So friends, in that, we don't, we don't wish for suffering. We don't seek it out. We don't find ourselves going, yes, yes, give me more, give me more. They, they nowhere are we instructed to do that. But we must have room in our heart for a suffering king so that when we suffer and endure trials, we say, my devotion for you is unflinching because I wanna be merry. I don't wanna be the crowds. Can we all agree on that? Let's live in the legacy of our sister Mary who teaches us to anoint Jesus and to pour out our great devotion upon him and affection for him. So this week, church family, my encouragement to you is set your eyes on the sufferings of Jesus. You're gonna need to be disciplined about that and to return to it day by day, to read on them, to think on them, to give thanks for them, to cry over them, to mourn them, We'll come together again on Friday and we'll do just that. Further reflection on these things. They're deep and weighty. They're the price paid for your sin and for mine so that we might sit here today under the grace of God, reconciled to the Father. And then having done that this week, laboring over that, we will come together next Sunday. I'm not gonna go there yet, but we're gonna come together next Sunday and it will be an explosion. Praise, adoration. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we know that we don't. Just because we've sat here together and reflected on this for the last you know, 40 minutes doesn't mean that we've really grasped even the beginning of it. But give us more understanding, give us more insight. We are your people, you are our king. And what we want is to have eyes to see every aspect of your kingship, every aspect of your rule, just more and more and more. We have such small minds and small hearts and we ask you to expand them and by the power of the spirit to grant us more understanding so that you'd have more glory through us and in us, that we would hate sin and wanna put it to death, that we would love and adore you more and more. And so now, Lord Jesus, we as your people are gonna rise and we're gonna sing your praises. And my prayer would be that, that this song now would be poured out from us the way Mary poured out that ointment upon your head. Just the last drop of devotion all the way, everything we have to offer to you, it's yours. We are yours. 
all our love, all our affection, all our money, all our time, it's yours. Great in Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand together, close our time in worship.